Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I recently conducted a live taping of the program at Hill Aerospace Museum. I was inside a large C-130 military transport aircraft. It was joined by the museum director and several military veterans. This was a part of the Bringing War Home project. Uh, so today, I hope you'll stay tuned to hear some fascinating stories that resulted from that uh, taping. Uh, by the way, broadcasts of Bringing War Home on Utah Public Radio, supported by Utah Humanities. And you can go to our website, upr.org. It's upr.org to uh, learn more about Bringing War Home. UPR, as part of that project, is recording stories from military veterans and their families and friends at several project roadshows through a partnership with the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies and the USU History Department, along with the USU Museum of Anthropology. And at upr.org, you can sign up to share your story. The next roadshow is on May 14th at uh, Fort Douglas Museum in Salt Lake uh, City. Uh, they're encouraging you to bring in uh, any artifacts, objects uh, from uh, your time in the service or uh, from your uh, your family or friends. And, of course, uh, our part of it, UPRs, is to record your story. So we did uh, quite a bit of that at Hill Aerospace Museum. We're going to begin the program here with uh, just a little bit from my interview with um, Aaron Clark, who's the director of Hill Aerospace Museum. And then we'll hear uh, from a gentleman, a military veteran, who flew in C-130 transport aircraft. Uh, that's where we're broadcasting from. So let's hear these to open the program. Before I have you tell anything about yourself, about the museum, tell us a little bit about this plane, the C-130 we're sitting in the middle of. Yeah, it's, it sounds kind of awkward to say we're just sitting in a C-130 doing a radio show, um, but we are. Uh, we had um, we had a C-130. We wanted to make a unique learning experience for a lot of our guests. Um, we're part of the Air Force Museum program. Uh, all the aircraft in our collection fall under the National Collection. And uh, one of the most common requests we get from a lot of our guests, thousands of our guests, is, hey, we want to get an aircraft. We want to touch an aircraft. Well, these aircraft are considered artifacts. So they can't do that, obviously. Uh, so we found a unique opportunity to take a C-130 aircraft that was made in the 19, 1960s. Um, served in the Air Force, and we converted it into a no-kidding uh, classroom space for the uh, for our guests to get that tactile, uh, immersive experience that they're looking for, uh, and we use it weekly for that. So if you come to the museum, you can just walk down a hallway and uh, and enter the C-130. It is pretty cool. Yeah, it's very cool. Uh, the C-130 we have open on Saturdays right now, uh, so if you come to the museum on Saturday, you can get inside the C-130. You can smell, touch, and see what our airmen see. Uh, when they're supporting and defending our country. Next, we're going to talk to uh, someone who can tell us about the uh, the plane we're sitting right in the middle of here. We're sitting in a C-130, so first of all, tell us your name. My name's Lynn Walker. So you worked on C-130s. I flew on them for 20 you, years. Oh, yeah. So tell us about the plane itself first. Uh, we're, we're sitting in the middle of one. Okay, the C-130, we took our first one in the Air Force in 1954, they're still building the planes. They've found nothing that can totally replace the C-130. It does not need a runway. It will slow down enough to where you can fuel helicopters with it. Uh, the jets can't. It's the only aircraft the U.S. has in the military that can 
go into a hurricane without the wings coming off. It's structurally wow. made better than anything else for that purpose. So if you're watching a broadcast on a hurricane forecast, it's probably coming out of a C-130. Wow. So that's structurally sound. You could fly into a hurricane. Yes. Wow. That's, a, that's amazing. We have a squadron in Mississippi. That's all they do is go hunting for hurricanes. Yeah. Yeah, that must be quite the experience, flying into a hurricane. I have not done it. <laughs> wow. Um, so you said a C-130 doesn't need a runway. No. How, how do you do that? You can land it on a road, uh, on a flat field. The way the engines set their turboprops, they sit high enough where they won't pick garbage up off from the dirt and trash the engines. And I guess, the, the, you know, this is, a, this is a big old space in here that we're sitting in. You can transport just about anything in this, I guess. Uh, up about 100,000 pounds on... Now, I'm talking H models are older. The J models have changed, but that was after I retired. I know they're longer and obviously can carry more. What are some of the things you remember carrying in a C-130? All kinds of supplies... You can put one Huey helicopter in it if you take the rotor off. You can drive two medium tanks on it. We used to take three Jeeps with the crew, the fire type, fire control Jeeps, and do what we'd call a tactical drop. We would find where they wanted to go. The crew would be in the Jeep. We would drop the uh, the ramp out straight, and the first jeep you'd put a parachute out. It would drop out on a metal aircraft pallet, bounce usually two times. By then, it would slow down enough the jeep crew could drive off and do what they needed to. And it's a officially is a low altitude parachute extraction system. We just called it a tactical drop. Uh, the 20,000-pound Moab bomb they dropped in Afghanistan had to come out of a C-130. It was the only thing could haul it and yet slow down enough to accurately deliver it. Wow, that's amazing. So we used to do that bomb, in yeah. Vietnam with 10,000-pounders. They were not for killing people, but if you were around in the jungles and needed to get helicopters in for either extraction of downed pilots or in certain people, you could drop it. It would go off about 18 inches off the ground. We called them daisy cutters, and it would clear a helicopter landing pad when it blew, mm. and we used them quite frequently. How many years did you fly these? 20 years. 20 years, C C-130s. Yep. Um, what What's the range on on these? Uh, depending on if you got tip tanks, the normal range without anything extra is about 3,200 miles. You can put fuel bladders inside of them to fuel other or helicopters as well as burn that fuel yourself, so... Depending on how much fuel you put in, how far you could go. What do people say when they come through here? It's, this is pretty impressive. 
aircraft. Kind of nice to have a C-130 here at the uh, I'm museum. glad yeah. we've got it. Yeah. We also have, you see a big screen TV. Yes, that's right. It has various things you can do with a C-130. And people come in to get an education. And, of course, we can show them using the video as well as the one thing I like. you notice we got a few of the seat belts. The kids love for us to belt them in. And okay. I use it as a learning experience for the kids that they should be belted in, whether it's a car, aircraft, or whatever. Yeah, we should describe this. Uh, these are red. These are uh, canvas, I guess. Um Nylon strap, nylon uh, bench, nylon benches. Yeah, with with the seatbelts uh, attached. Yeah, that's how I guess troops would be transported. Yeah, yeah. You can also mm-hmm. put seats facing the opposite directions, mm-hmm. and you can take about fifty three troops in them. Uh, anything else you'd like to say about C one thirty? Well, do have one thing. I guess I might as well tell you it was during the evacuation of Saigon when we were helping getting escapees out that had worked with us. Uh, We were on an AC-130, which is the gunship. I was. We had two H-53 rescue choppers had caught small arms fire in Cambodia and had to set down. They called us to go in with replacement choppers and get the people out, which we did. We got the replacement choppers in and discouraged with the gunship, discouraged the enemy from coming after them. Uh, They got airborne, but we didn't want to leave two good choppers there. So we went up high enough to be able to destroy the two choppers with the 75 millimeter guns, which we did, but in the process, we got high enough that a SAM missile uh, located us and fired. Uh, We were lucky in a way. It came in through the unarmored side of the 130, but it detonated the best I could tell where the landing gear is on the opposite side. Killed, there was a crew of nine. Killed the five loaders back in the fuselage. Killed the co-pilot and the flight engineer. Uh, I assessed the damage the best I could. Meanwhile, the pilot was bleeding bad enough, he became unconscious. And fortunately, he had taught me to fly the aircraft. I bandaged him up the best I could, and we had two engines out. We only had the inboard two running. When he was fully unconscious, I flew it the rest of the way into Thailand to a base we were staging from and put it in with wheels up landing. Uh, Managed to get him out before we had to self-destruct on him and it blew. Well, thank you for sharing. Uh, Anything at all you'd like to share? 
No, I think that okay. I enjoyed my 20-year career uh, yeah. for the most part. There were bad times, but for the most part, it was a good career. Yeah, wonderful. What do you, what do you tell your family or others uh, as you reflect on your service? What do, you, what do you say? What's come top of mind for you about your service? Most of it, I still can't talk about. It's classified. Uh, they know I wasn't home most of the time, but... Uh, Basically, what I can talk about and the places I was, I do. Well, we appreciate you sharing uh, here for us. Okay. And uh, thank you for your service. Okay, thank thank you. you. Thank you. You're listening to Access Utah, and you're hearing the program that uh, I uh, taped on Saturday uh, in a large C-130 military transport aircraft. Uh, That's part of uh, Hill Aerospace Museum, and... uh, uh, First uh, up on the broadcast, we talked to you with museum director Aaron Clark. We'll hear more from him at the end of this broadcast. And we heard there for, from a military veteran and a volunteer at the museum, Lynn Walker. And by the way, on Saturdays, you can go and uh, go into that C-130 aircraft, and uh, the person there to greet you will be Lynn Walker. We're going to uh, take a break. We'll come back with more from this uh, broadcast from Hill Aerospace Museum. This is part of the Bringing War Home project, uh, project and uh, broadcasts of Bringing War Home on Utah Public Radio, supported by Utah Humanities. More following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I recently conducted a live taping of Access Utah at Hill Aerospace Museum. I was inside a large C-130 military transport aircraft and was joined by the museum director. We'll hear more from him at the end of the broadcast and several military veterans. And earlier in the program, we heard from Lynn Walker. These military veterans are also volunteers at uh, the museum. Uh, This is all part of the Bringing War Home project. You can find out more about that at upr.org. Uh, where you can sign up to tell your story. Come to one of the roadshows uh, from the project. Uh, bring an artifact or object uh, from your military service or uh, maybe your family member or friend from, of a military veteran. Bring uh, that in, and they will uh, uh, help to record that. And uh, as part of that project, uh, we would love to record your story as well. And uh, so you can sign up uh, for the next Roadshow, which is May 14th at uh, Fort Douglas Museum in uh, Salt Lake City. There'll be others in the fall as well. You can also find out uh, more at uh, Mountain West Center for Regional Studies uh, website. And we're partnering on this um, with Mountain West Center for Regional Studies at USU, USU History Department, and USU Museum of Anthropology. And a note that broadcasts on UPR, uh, Bring War Home, uh, are supported by Utah Humanities. Well, next up, let's hear um, from my interviews with two more military military veterans. Again, we were in a C-130 military trans, uh, transport aircraft at uh, Hill Aerospace Museum. Let's hear first from uh, Dennis Jacobs, and uh, that'll be followed by an interview with Paul Stone. Each of these gentlemen are military veterans. Each are volunteers at the museum. So uh, just uh, tell me your name and uh, what you do here at the museum. My name is Dennis Jacobs. Um, I'm just a volunteer. I'm trying to get uh, qualified as a docent so I can give qualified tours in the museum. And it's kind of an intense situation. 
due to the fact that we have to be pretty well qualified on nomenclature, also how to describe aircraft, uh, what their functions were, and what use they were during the very eras of uh, flight. So what's your interest? Why do you volunteer? Why are you preparing to well, be a docent? What do, you, what do you want to impart to people? I have always had an affinity for aircraft. I was raised in Layton, Utah, in a post-Second World War housing project called Verlin Park, which is right at the end of the runway. And I got to see all the airplanes that took off and landed at, um, from Hill Air Force Base. So I got to see multiple. And I just I was thrilled with aircraft. Um, I graduated from Davis High School in 57. And I always wanted to be a pilot or a crew member. And I went to the basic training and came back and became a crew chief on a C-119. And that was where I spent my 10 years as a crew chief on a C-119. Tell us about C-119. Okay, C-119. Describe that for us. Okay. Actually, it was used a lot in Korea. It was bought, they actually started building them in 1943. Their primary goal was in Korea. They flew them. They did a lot of support. There. It's called the flying box car, and you can look that up. It's a twin boom. Uh, carries about oh 30,000 pounds of weight as far as dropping, and we they, we can drop personnel, hay, or whatever, and it comes in a pallet. There's a long story that goes with that. I was thrilled to be a crew chief. Um, I got to fire the engines up and make sure everything is functioning and do the walk around with the pilots. And then I would qualify so I could sign it off to make sure the aircraft was ready to fly. And it was an honor for me to fly with the people I did fly with. And some of them are still around and I keep in contact with them. It was just, a, it, it was a joy for me to uh, participate in that activity. I just loved it. Give me an uh, idea of the size. We're sitting, uh, talking in the middle of a uh, C-130. What would be comparable size of a uh, C-119? Physically, dimension-wise, is about the same width mm-hmm. as this. Yeah. Only it was a box car. Okay. If you look at a, a box car. Yeah. And that's where they come from. Okay. It's physically about this, much shorter, a lot shorter than that. And it didn't have, it doesn't have the power plant, the engines of the C-130. Ours were 3350s. Dash 89As, and I won't get into detail on that. And they're just radial engines. Uh, our altitude, the most we could go to, they said it was 24,000 feet, but I don't think we ever got to above 14,000 mm-hmm. because above 12, you have to be on oxygen yeah. all the time. Or you have to, it has, it has to be pressurized. It was unpressurized, cold in the winter, hot in the summer. So it was just, and the, it had, Twin booms, you could open, you could take the back clamshells off on the C-119, and then you had a, a, a strictly vertical surface. We could load Jeeps, we could load trucks in the back through loading ramps. We could close them and take them off. Or if we're doing heavy drops, uh, like a, a Jeep out, it'd be on a pallet, and it would roll out. It would have a, a drag chute that would pull it out, and then the chute would inflate and it would drop to the ground safe to support the people below. We, we, we could drop munitions, that kind of stuff. But we didn't have a lot of weight characteristics because we could only carry about 30,000 pounds. You get a couple of Jeeps in and a few personnel, 
you're getting pretty close to the gross takeoff weight. Okay, yeah. That helps me uh, visualize it. it actually is a flying boxcar. So what you're, yeah. yeah, that's very good. Um, you said you transport just about everything. What kinds of things did you transport? Well, I'll give you a brief. If you don't know what happened in October of 1962, the Cuban crisis was, um, and that's when Kennedy was um, getting ready because we, it was in Cuba, and Cuba is 90 miles off the, Key West, Florida, and uh, we were activated, and so we flew to Riverside, California, loaded my aircraft with munitions, and they were fully loaded into the, it was maxed out as far as weight goes, and then we flew to Key West, Florida, and waited for the invasion to happen. Our goal was, if we had to drop the stuff, we had to fly over to Cuba, we had the clamshell doors off, and it was exposed. So if we're going to resupply the people on the ground, then we'd fly over, and they, the navigator would tell us when we had to kick them out, and then we'd just exit the stuff out into the... And so the people on the ground got supplies for munitions, which are a lot of bullets or hand grenades or whatever was in the... Pa- we weren't privy to what was in it other than it just had munitions. We weren't privy to what was inside the boxes, yeah. inside the, the containers. What's the most unusual thing you ever... Carried? The human race. The human race. <laughs> <laughs> because we are one of our training missions, or we had, to, we had paratroopers. And so that was one of our goals, would be to carry those. But to oddest ones... There's just north and east of us is called the uh, Hardware Ranch, and they have elk. And there was a winter there that um, they couldn't get, they couldn't feed the elk at the Hardware Ranch. And so we loaded the C-119, took the clamshell doors off, and loaded hay in it. So we would fly and drop down real low, and kick out bales of hay. And if you've ever worked around hay, as I did as a young a young man. And where you got a wind current would come back, and we just got you just be filled your all your clothing and itchy stuff. But that was probably the oddest thing we ever, everything we ever dropped off. Yeah, probably you wouldn't have predicted that you had been doing that in the military, right? No, no, no. Yeah. But it was it was a mission that needed to get done. Yeah. Um, but it was it was just part of the it was part of the program, and I can't express from my own soul how much I enjoyed doing what I did for the my portion of doing whatever I need for this country. Well, as you reflect on that, on your service, and you know, especially talk to family members or friends, what, what do you tell them about your service and how you feel about it? I honor the time that I spent with them. Because to me, had we had to go active duty, when we went active duty to the Cuban crisis, and I tell people as I give my um, tour around here, I've never feared death, but that scared me worse than anything else. I was a, I was a 22-year-old. I had two children at home. And when I left to be activated, I kissed my wife, my two young children. We got to Key West, Florida, and the greatest fear I had, like I said, I don't fear death, but I feared losing my life and never seeing my family again my young family and I think that was but also it was important for me as a crew chief 
to know that I had the responsibilities of the aircraft. So when the pilots would come out, we'd do the walk around, everything was wonderful. I knew the aircraft would fly for the duration of the flight. And I felt very honored to have that responsibility and then participate with the crew, with the group, to do that, if that satisfies your answer. Yes, yes, definitely. Anything else you'd like to say? First of all, I'd like to thank you for the opportunity of this. I, I think if I, and I try to live over my life again, I don't think I would change a thing because I had a great time. I had the responsibilities of what I did, and I was honored to serve with the people that I served with. I just, I love my life, and I love the times that I spent with the Air Force. Well, wonderful. Uh, we've been talking with Dennis Jacobs, volunteer here at Hill Aerospace Museum. Uh, Mr. Jacobs, thank you for coming in. Thank you for thank your you service. Thank you very much thank for you. the time. Appreciate, Appreciate it. it. Well, thank you for coming in. Uh, first, tell us tell us your name and what you do here at the museum. Paul Stone, and uh, I kind of find myself just a little bit uh, out of sorts here in this museum because I'm an ICBM guy, uh-huh. and they've got these things in here that people ride in. Right. <laughs> so you you work with missiles, right, that the, you I don't ride in. yeah. Well, I started out, you know, my career was uh, in the Air Force. Uh, started out working with, you know, on airplanes, but usually just the radar systems on airplanes. Didn't get involved in any of the flying things, figuring out how they flew and what, why they flew and whatever. Yeah. Just, just the radar equipment that was on. Well, tell aircraft. me a bit about that. Radar, this is the radar system on planes, I guess, it, to detect, uh, I guess, what, what dangers we, or yeah. what? My training was in electronic countermeasures equipment. Uh, my first assignment here at Hill Air Force Base, uh, the outfit that I was in was still flying B-29s. And they would fly radar missions against ground radar sites here in the western part of the United States just to evaluate their capabilities of detecting who they were, who was coming, are you an enemy or whatever. And and we would try to uh, confuse them with the jamming equipment that mm. we had. That's what electronic countermeasures was, equipment right, was all about. Right. Uh, tell me about the, the B-29. B-29 was, uh, by that time, was a little bit unreliable. The six B-29s that we had, there was never a time that they could get all of, off the, the runway and fly missions all at the same time. There was usually only probably half of them was out being repaired, you know. You know, and so it was it, it was the the end of the career of the B twenty nine. Yeah. So it, uh, when would have been the heyday of the B twenty nines? World War Two. Well, the heyday was, was during the Second World War. Second World War. Yeah. 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 Uh, give us a give us and an so idea. That was, that was you know. 10, 11, 12 years prior to ah, my involvement with them. Yeah, yeah. So during your time, B-29s kind of coming to their end, I guess. Right. Um, uh, give me a sense of the dimensions of B-29. How, how big a plane uh, is that? God, you know, I don't remember. We, we got one sitting out here in the, okay. in the airport out there. So out there. <laughs> We're sitting in a C-130. Is it yeah, comparable in size? Yeah, they're comparable size with mm-hmm. the C-130, yes. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. D- different mission, of course, to, right, to, the, to the C-130. They were, they, C-130. They were bombers. Yeah. They're the ones that dropped the, the bombs on yeah. Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Right. Those oh, B-29s. Yeah. yeah, those are B-29s. Yeah. Um, so you worked with the radar on, on yes. the B-29s. Then what did you go on to do? Well, what happened uh, from here, I went to Tachikawa Air Base in Japan and went to a depot shop, which was uh, had the repair, was going to have the repair uh, you know, responsibilities for any of the ECM gear, the electronic countermeasure equipment, you know, that was involved with airplanes in the in the uh, Far East. 
uh, all the way from Guam, the B-36s, we got checked out. A couple of us went down to Guam and got checked out where the UCM gear was located and how it got replaced and, you know, to uh, test it to see if they're functioning properly, you know, before they left on their missions. And also while we were there, we got, uh, we got checked out on the uh, ECM gear on B-47s, and they were the first jet aircraft that we were, that we were involved with. Interesting. So it was the early, earlier days of, yeah. the, you know, the, of the jet, uh, jet bombers. How was that going from uh, B-29 to then being around jets? Well, it was, yeah. it was a different situation, but the equipment was almost identical. It, there were some modifications because of restrictions on the, uh, the jet aircraft were tighter restrictions for space. So the equipment was, was shaped a little differently in, on the jet aircraft than they were on the, the reciprocating engine. They had more room in the cabin area, you know, on the on the uh, aircraft that had propellers. Right, right. <laughs> uh, is, is from there, did you go to work on ICBMs? Well, when I came back from uh, Japan, I just uh, decided not to stay in the service and got a job back here at Hale Air Force Base. This is where I'd come initially, and this is where I'd met my wife from here, and this is a natural place because guys usually end up where mother-in-law lives. Mm-hmm. And so I uh, got a job right here in a, in a radar shop here, and uh, but that didn't last very long. Within within six months of being involved in the radar system, uh, the fire control system on the F-89 here, somebody come around and asked if anybody's interested in, in getting some training on the, the Beaumont missile system. I raised my hand. My wife and I didn't have any children at the time, and we were, we were free to, you know, travel travel to Seattle for training on the Beaumont missile system. And so, from 1958, just a few months after I started my civilian career here at Hell Air Force Base, I ended up, you know, being trained on the Target Seeker system, which is a radar system on the on the Beaumont missile system. And so, and then within uh, probably that was in 1958, and by 1962. Then uh, the, uh, our information changed, and, and we started getting involved in the Minuteman missile system. So tell me about that, that uh, the advancement of the missile systems. Well, they, well, they were, of course, two different systems, you know, for mm-hmm. purposes for the Baltimore missile system. They were going to be stationed on the East Coast and the West Coast to detect aircraft coming and, and stop enemy aircraft coming to the shores, either, either shore, eastern shore or the, or the western shores of the United States. The Beaumont didn't last very long, and it didn't get uh, deployed uh, like it was going to be deployed because the Army's Nike missile system turned out to be a better system, and they, they're the ones that got deployed around, the, and, and the Beaumont kind of faded away. So kind of a through line of your career is, you know, radar detection, that, uh, that sort of thing, very important job. Uh, so it, I guess got more and more sophisticated, but I'm yes, well, essentially you're detecting... Danger, right? Well, it's a little different situation with the Minuteman system. Mm. That's a completely different missile system. That's a, that's a system that's designed, you know, to be defensive. You know, if we get shot at, they're going to get shot back, you know, mm. using the Minuteman system to... And that was a, actually a terrible thing, really, to, th- to think about. If we ever had to use those things, it would be terrible. It would be terrible for the enemy country, and it would be terrible for us if we, if we was firing, you know, nuclear nuclear bombs at each other. Yeah, lest we forget, right? Those are those are nuclear warheads, right? right? Yeah. So an exhibit is coming, ICBM exhibit. That's yes. probably exciting to you. Yes, it yeah. is, and, and 
we've been waiting for the last several months for it to, you know, to get completed. Just some different things, I guess, they got, they've got to finish up on it to make it uh, more enjoyable and safe yeah. for people to, to come. And so I'm kind of waiting. I'm just kind of been sitting in the wings, I guess you might say, to, waiting for them to get it done. So that, that's going to be my station because right now I'm the only one that has worked ICBM with the group of uh, volunteers we got here yeah. right now. I've been asking other guys, you know, to say, hey, if you need something to do, you got some time, come on out, you know. Right. Have government. Oh, I see. Well, the reason yeah. why, because mm-hmm. we don't have a, you know, anything for them to, you know, to, to get by and, and tell people what we know about this, these yeah. things. Well, as you reflect on your service, what do you, what thoughts come to mind when you tell people about your service? What's, what's top of your mind for you? Well, you know, there was different, different challenges in the, in the service, uh, but it was, uh, it was a great career. I was fortunate to be able to get into the career. I was, uh, my dad was a sharecrop farmer in, in Illinois. We had a pretty good-sized dairy farm, the last farm that I was on with my father. And so to, to get in the service and get into a career that I did, it provided a good career for my, my whole career with the, my civilian career. Ended up with, uh, you know, 36 years career, good, good career. Uh, two-thirds of it was as a supervisor in the electronic shop here at Hill Air Force Base, and it was it was a good career. Enjoyed it. Tell me a little bit more about that, uh, growing up on a sharecrop farm and, and then and getting the, having the career you had. Well, the sharecrop farming is uh, it, it's uh, farmers that don't have uh, the money to buy a farm. They go around and, and work farms that uh, the, the owners are you know, either gone or they're retired, and, and so they hire people to come. And uh, we raise the crops, we take care of the cattle, we, uh, or whatever is being raised on a particular farm. Uh, my dad worked on three different, did three different farms that way in my, in my career until, until I was in the eighth grade, I think. Yeah, I was in the eighth grade, and my dad went to work for Del Monte Packing Corporation. So our life changed at that time. We was milking 30-some-odd cows one day, the next day was milking one. <laughs> so that's a, life changed after, after that's that. That's a that's a big change. A big change, and so you know, was I'm the oldest of uh, five children. I have three brothers and I had a sister, and uh, we didn't have much to do after that. So I had to find a different path for yeah, my, for yeah. my career. Uh, that, that's true. The farming's kind of uh, everybody all hands on deck, right? But right. Uh, yeah. One thing the military does is it, you know, takes you to different places. This brought you to Utah. What were your thoughts coming from Illinois to Utah? Uh, it was interesting. Uh, I thought it was a, a great place. Uh, fortunately, I'd had a high school friend that had come to Hill Air Force Base a year or so before me. And so he'd already greased the skids here, basically, you know, got familiar with some young ladies. And, and I met one of them and ended up, ended up getting married here. And then I took her to Japan with me. And. We had a good we had a good uh, tour duty there in Japan. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. The uh, the duty that I had there in Japan was not a good duty. We rarely rarely got anything to work on. But uh, was my wife having a, a job and and on the base we did well and saw a lot of sights. Toured toured Japan quite a bit while we were there. And it was so it was a good tour duty that way. But just you were kind of idle. You didn't have much to do. Is what you're That's saying? Right. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to say? Just that it's, uh, it's it's been a good life, a big good career that I've had, you know, with the uh, with the uh, Air Force, uh, all of the periods of time that uh, I've spent as a supervisor out here, and the people we got to be involved with, and we would take different I take different teams out to, to work at the missile sites. 
almost all the wings, well, at least four, four of the different wings, of the six different wings that they had, the Minuteman missiles all over the western part of the United States, well, clear to, clear to Missouri, had Minuteman missiles, you know, in, in Missouri and all over Montana and the Dakotas and Nebraska and out of Cheyenne, Wyoming, so... And you get familiar with those kind of countries being TDY to some of those places, uh, like Rapid City, South Dakota. We spent nine months there one time on a different project, and our daughter was get to spend her whole first year in school in, in Rapid City, South Dakota, <laughs> at, at General Beetle, General mm. Beetle Elementary. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just a, a good career, all in all. Well, thank you for telling us a bit about it, and uh, thank you for your service. Thank you. You're welcome. Appreciate it. You're listening to Access Utah. We are uh, uh, giving you the interviews I uh, conducted at Hill Aerospace Museum in the middle of a C-130 military transport aircraft. We heard right there from Paul Stone, military veteran who's also a volunteer at the museum, and preceding him, Dennis Jacobs, a military veteran and also volunteer at the Hill Aerospace Museum. This is part of Bringing War Home Project, broadcasts of Bringing War Home on Utah Public Radio, supported by Utah Humanities. This is also a partnership uh, with the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies, USU History Department, and USU Museum of Anthropology. We'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I recently conducted a live taping of the program at Hill Aerospace Museum inside a C-130 aircraft. And uh, we have been talking to some military veterans who uh, volunteer at the museum. Earlier in the program, we had a portion of my conversation there with the museum director, Aaron Clark. And uh, to conclude this uh, program, which is part of the Bringing War Home Project, by the way, you can find information at the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies website, also at upr.org. And there you can sign up to uh, tell your story if you're a military veteran or if you're a family or friend of a military veteran at one of the roadshows for the project. And uh, the next roadshow is at Fort Douglas Museum uh, on May 14th. Uh, this is a partnership with Mountain West Center for Regional Studies, USU History Department, and USU Museum of Anthropology, and broadcasts of Bring War Home on Utah Public Radio, uh, supported by Utah Humanities. So to conclude the program, we are going to give you the rest of uh, my conversation with Museum Director at Hill Aerospace Museum, Aaron Clark. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you want a little background? A little um, background. So my, uh, my dad retired after the Air Force. He served in the Air Force uh, and retired in Utah in the 90s, and I want to get out of Utah. So I joined the Air Force as well and um, saw the world, seen enough of it, and then I uh, got out of the Air Force and um, was, uh, with a lot of education, became an Air Force historian, civilian job. And I did that for a number of years, and I became the installation historian for Hill Air Force Base. And then I had the awesome, awesome opportunity of becoming the director of the museum starting back in 2016. Yeah. I have follow-up questions. This yeah. is interesting. So what kinds of things did you do in the Air Force? I did one thing. I was, in, yeah. I was a firefighter. Really? Yeah. So a lot of people think that, uh, you know, you joined the Air Force. What plane did you fly? Well, it takes a lot of support to get those planes in the air. Uh, so I was a firefighter. I did structural firefighting. I did airport firefighting. Uh, I spent a lot of my time in Germany, uh, Ramstein Air Base. I'm sure you've heard of that. Uh, yeah, but I worked on the flight lines out there, and I also worked uh, around the facilities. So that's that's what I did in the Air Force. Okay, interesting. 
so it's not everyone who says I'm going to leave the Air Force and become an Air Force historian. <laughs> what, how did that happen? Yeah, that's what, that's funny you ask that because that's like one of the most common questions I get. How'd you go from being a firefighter yeah. to, to being a historian, you know, public history um, career field? It all goes back to before I got married. So when we moved out here, when my dad retired, um, I've always wanted to be a historian. Uh, when my dad was in the Air Force, we traveled the country, lived in the country, all over the country, and my mom would always take me to historical sites wherever we were at, you know, to learn more about that part of the, the country. A lot of time was spent in Civil War battlefields. And as a kid, uh, that was pretty impactful moments uh, when we did that. For some reason, I'm told I'm a pretty insensitive, insensitive guy, but those were pretty sensitive and emotional times for me, and it really made an impact on me. And I knew at that point going on, I wanted to study history more. And so when my dad retired out here, uh, I started going to Weber State to be a historian. Uh, but then I met my wife. Uh, I didn't have enough money to get married, and I've always wanted to join the Air Force, so what a wonderful opportunity. So I did my time in the Air Force. I enjoyed it. And then after I got out of the Air Force, I started hitting the books real hard again uh, to finish what I started years before. You have to get a degree in museums, or what do you what do? you do? Well, the way my path kind of worked is uh, I have two degrees in history, and then I have uh, a lot of uh, experience with supervision, uh, management, and stuff like that. So that's how that worked. Uh, so tell me a little bit about uh, Hill. Give, give me the thumbnail, brief history of Hill uh, Aerospace Museum. Hill Aerospace Museum, yeah. So why are we here, right? What do we do? What is the museum all about? Uh, a lot of people come here, they think uh, we're just a, you know, just an airplane museum. But it's really uh, a lot more than that, quite a bit more. And I'm very passionate about the mission of this museum. The sole purpose of this museum here is to educate and inspire, hopefully anyone who walks through our doors, about the history of Hill Air Force Base and Utah Aviation. It's quite, quite cool. Uh, Hill Air Force Base is the second largest Air Force installation. It's been around for over 80 years. It's the largest single-site employer in the state, and it's been a, a, an impactful force in our Department of Defense for decades. And uh, our job is to convey that importance and that impact to the guests that walk through our door. Really cool stuff. I was reading a little bit of the history of Hill, well, Hill Field first, right? Yeah, Hill, Hill Field, Hill, you're Hill exactly Air right. Force, it was Army Field. Uh, base. It was, uh, of course, Army Air Corps before it came to the, yeah. the, the Air Force. Before uh, we did the right thing and broke away. <laughs> said like a, a true Air Force man, right? That's right. Um, so uh, give me a little thumbnail sketch of, uh, of that history. Of Hill Field itself? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty interesting how Hill Field came about. Utah, since flight was a thing, right, after the Wright brothers, Utah has had quite a strong fascination with flight. And in the 1930s, a lot of uh, the leaders around the state were you know, advocating to bring flight in some way or another to, to this region. So in the 1930s, just to give you an example of some stuff that occurred that kind of led to Hill Air Force Base, airmail contracts in the mid-30s, they were pulled from private entities and the Army took them over uh, interim before they could uh, reestablish those contracts again. And during that time frame, Salt Lake City Airport was the western hub for airmail delivery. And Hap Arnold was in charge of that. And I don't know if you heard that name before, Hap Arnold. That's right, yeah, Hap yeah, Arnold. Yeah. One of the forefathers of the Air Force. Uh, he came out here and he saw kind of the, the benefits of the land, its actual like placement in the state uh, and away from the shore and the weather. He saw all these benefits of this region while he was here. And then after that, uh, we had something start occurring in Europe. It's things that really started scaring people across the country, right? We had that Nazi aggression starting to occur. And uh, I think we know that a conflict was coming. And we knew that our air arm, our air arm, the military was deficient. And so we were looking at doing base buildups uh, across the country. And the military knew it wanted to put an airdrome, an airfield, somewhere in the Rocky Mountain region. 
And uh, when they started researching where to put a place like this, you know, you had Hap Arnold's experiences out here, and you had a lot of the leaders in Utah advocating for this region to put that airfield. Not only that, they took th- over 3,000 acres in escrow and gifted them to the federal government to assist in making that decision. And ultimately, that's how it happened is, you know, strong uh, support from the state and military leaders that spent time here before and saw the benefits of the region. And that's what all culminated. And then in, ni- then in 1940, we broke ground for Hill Air Force Base. And after that's pretty much history, we've had the same mission, the same primary mission for over 80 years, which is maintenance of weapon systems. So you do have, I noticed you have on your website, you, you talk about uh, artifacts, not only aircraft. Let's start with the aircraft. Yeah. Uh, roughly how many kinds of aircraft? What do you... At the museum? Mm-hmm, yes. So we have over 80 uh, static airframes here. A lot of the more, you know, renowned, well-known ones that have made an impact throughout history, um, like the B-25, the B-24, B-17, F-16s, A-10s, the SR-71. Just a couple, uh, last month we went and picked up a U-2 out of Arizona. So uh, we have dozens of aircraft that highlight the impact made by our airmen locally and around the country throughout this collection. And it's just interesting to see who who likes what. It's it, There's this it's a smattering of no way to really you know pinpoint what's the most favorite aircraft uh, in this collection. There is one favorite aircraft in this collection, which we didn't think was going to be the case, but it was the Wright Flyers. Oh, okay. We always thought the SR-71 was the most popular aircraft in this collection. Then we started doing a lot of surveys, and it came to find out that the Wright Flyers, something about early flight, I don't know about the romanticism of all or the nostalgic of all, but our guests really adore the early flight craft. So... And I guess it just depends on the person that comes through, you know, favorite or... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you might have vets who flew with the F-4 or different mm-hmm. airframes, and, you know, they have a little bias towards that airframe. Yeah. The general public, they love the Wright Flyers. What would be the most unusual, unexpected aircraft that you have here? I think what people get surprised by the most is our drones, right? Uh, when we think drones today in modern-day terms, is you think of like a little teeny object that's, you know, about 12 inches long that flies in the air, but Air Force drones are significantly bigger. We have an MQ-1 drone in our collection, and the wingspan's 48 feet long. That's much bigger than, you know, what people think of a modern-day drone. And these aircraft can loiter in the air for a long time, doing reconnaissance and intelligence. So I think that's probably one of the most unique ones, or the ones, the airframe that surprises people the most are the drones. Yeah. Well, let's talk, I'm I'm talking superlatives here, Uh, largest, smallest. Aircraft? Yeah. Well, there's so many ways to define largest aircraft. Um, if you're talking wingspan or B-52, um, that is a ginormous aircraft, for lack of a better term. Uh, the C-124, an older airframe called Old Shaky, that's our tallest aircraft. Uh, probably our smallest aircraft would be our drones. Some of our older drones, like the Quail drone and the Fire Bee, they're very small. Uh, we do have a World War II aircraft called the Grasshopper, again, another small drone. Uh, I mean, another small airframe. And then we have a, another aircraft gave, uh, came to our collection not too long ago. It's a 1948 Navion gifted to us by Jake Garn, Senator Jake Garn, and um, that's a fairly small aircraft, but that was used for reconnaissance uh, Korean War era as well. Yeah. I have to follow up on one of the, the, the nickname is Old Shaky. Yeah. Aircraft. Yeah. That doesn't sound comfortable. What? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't flown in Old Shaky before. They don't fly them anymore, yeah. but I, I was told it wasn't very comfortable, but the aircraft, uh, a lot of times it fly below the weather, and so things get pretty shaky uh, as you fly. It's a large airframe, so... yeah. A lot of the veterans, they gave it that, that, that term of endearment, old shaky. Yeah. 
Um, you have an exhibit that's, I don't know when it's going to come online. I don't know if you want to mention it, but oh, it's yeah. really cool. I, I'm really looking, well, actually, you took me behind the scenes. Thank you for that. <laughs> no problem. But, but uh, when, the, when the general public is able to see that, tell, yeah. tell us about that. So we're really excited about, this will be the, our largest, most immersive exhibit ever built in the museum. And, uh, and the topic itself merits, I think, the coverage. Our museum is filled with aircraft, but we need to do a better story of talking about the Intercontinental Ballistic Missile Mission, the ICBM mission. And that's where we're doing this new exhibit. It's really, really cool. Hill Air Force Base has such a rich history when it comes to intercontinental ballistic missiles. We had the plant here at Hill Air Force Base that built all the Minuteman missiles. Uh, we have the 309th Missile Maintenance Group that maintains our ICBM systems across the country. So we found it really important to cover that story and educate our guests on it. The exhibit itself is it's pretty big. It's pretty like you've been in it, but we have a, a no kidding mock silo that shows what the missile silo looks like. We have a launch control center where airmen are in the ground, uh, at a, ready to you know push the button so to speak at a moment's notice. Um, so we, we we educate people on on the conditions uh, the airmen are in and how they support this weapon system. And then on the other side of the exhibit, we have a uh, fallout structure kind of showing the home front, how the beginning of the Cold War and kind of nuclear deterrence that whole change in warfare impacted us at home. So it's, we're pretty excited about that. But any, at any rate, uh, we're look, looking to have that open hopefully in four to five months. That's what we're shooting for. Yeah, it is, it is uh, pretty impressive. Um, I noticed on your website there's a virtual reality experience. I didn't, uh, that you can come here and, and uh, I guess have virtual reality experience. So we're trying to be creative. We're trying to bring our guests closer to the mission of Hill Air Force Base and what pilots get into. And we're also trying to get them, uh, people from around the world, closer to our collection, better access. So we have kind of two VR experiences. We have one where we worked with the uh, airmen on Hill Air Force Base to, no kidding, record several flights in A-10s around Utah. And then we integrated that into a, a 360 VR experience where they were, you know, a headset. And you'll see exactly what the pilots are seeing when they fly out of Hill Air Force Base, when they fly out to the West Desert. Uh, when they do maneuvers, uh, I, I can't, I've done it once. I'm not going to do it again. It makes me <laughs> violently sick. Uh, it's very realistic and it's extremely cool and it's authentic. And now on our website, uh, we're starting to populate it with VR or digital experiences. You can go through our aircraft and our collection. So if you come to the museum, you can't get in an aircraft, obviously, and you can't explore the artifacts. But if you go online, you can begin exploring those, walking through those aircraft, learning about different positions in those aircraft. Uh, or, and pretty soon you'll be able to manipulate the artifacts and see them from different angles. So trying to bring a whole other level of access. You said you became violently ill in, in the VR experience. That's that's pretty immersive. That's pretty good. Oh, well, yeah. That's, the kids love good, it. Good, you know, quote, unquote. It depends good, yeah. on who you are. The that's kids right, love yeah. it. It makes yeah. me sick. You're right. But it's, yeah. In terms of the experience and what do you, you get to see and feel, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Now, you're, the vast majority of your volunteers, I think, are, are military veterans. Most of our, our, yeah. our volunteers are veterans. Yeah. And we love it. We absolutely yeah. love it because a lot of them have connections to the collections, uh, the collection pieces. Some of the, some of the, actually, some of the our veterans have flown the aircraft in our collection. So, uh, really cool connection there. Uh, it really increases, um, makes a much more rich experience for our guests. Uh, let me just mention that uh, you can go to the website. I can't remember what the website it's is. It's aerospaceutah.org. Aerospaceutah.org. Yeah. A lot of stuff there. Take virtual tours through, you know, there yeah. as well. Um, but there is, you do have a foundation, and uh, and the, the foundation does take donations, I noticed. Yeah, there, so, so um, we're Air Force Field Museum, and we're supported by a 501c3, uh, the Aerospace Heritage Foundation of Utah, and they're the the private organization that helps us fundraise at the museum. 
Uh, anything else that you'd like to say about the museum before we close here? Uh, if you haven't been here, you need to come here. It's a fantastic, fantastic aviation museum. And to kind of, you know, make it a little bit more appealing, it's absolutely free. This museum is free to the public. And a lot of our educational programs are free too. A lot of people don't know that we have a really robust education center program at our museum. And we have teachers that we send across uh, northern Utah to go into the classroom to teach them more about aviation science and the history of Hill Air Force Base. So if you're uh, you know, a public educator and you want to you know, learn more about this or want your students to learn more about it, get it on our website. Yeah. And check it out because all that programming is free too. We'll come to your school and we can do virtual classroom experiences oh, excellent. too. And I, I think you plan on expansion as well. Yes, we're really excited about that. So for the past about seven years, we've been fundraising to expand the museum to bring most of the outdoor aircraft inside. And next year, we, hopefully, that expansion will be complete. We'll break ground as early as this August, but uh, the facility itself will be roughly 80,000 square feet, and most of the outdoor aircraft will come inside and will allow us to expand on the storylines that make Utah and Hill Air Force Base so unique. Well, very good. Uh, tell us again the, the website. It's aerospaceutah.org. Aerospaceutah.org. We've been talking with Aaron Clark, who is the director of the museum here, Hill Aerospace Museum. And... Uh, just a reminder, we're broadcasting from the from the middle of a C-130. <laughs> uh, that is so cool. Thank you for hosting us here. Thanks for Appreciate having Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. This is part of the Bringing War Home Project, a partnership with the USU Mountain West Center for Regional Studies, the USU History Department, and USU Museum of Anthropology. More information at upr.org. Broadcasts of Bringing War Home on UPR are supported by Utah Humanities. Many cultures, one sky. Skywatcher Leo T here in south central Utah in the red rocks and blue skies and white clouds and stars at night. Hey, in the morning though, Venus and Jupiter are coming even closer together in the early morning sky before sunrise. I was able to spot them about 5.15 or so in the morning, forming a beautiful glowing triangle with the crescent moon just below. This configuration literally is somewhat of a pleasant shock to the senses, pretty surreal looking. Venus and Jupiter will continue to get closer the next few days and uh, up till May 2nd. In this fun lineup, Mars and Saturn are in an equidistant line following Jupiter and Venus. The elusive Neptune is also in the mix as she passes by Venus on Thursday morning. So have a look at these cosmic cue balls dancing in space. And as we evolve into spring in the evenings, the long, dim sea serpent Hydra snakes far across the southern sky. Hydra's tail stretches all the way to Libra, rising in the southeast. As soon as I can, I'll post a chart on the Skywatcher Leo T Facebook so you can look at this. Also in our solar system, a couple of Mars quakes were picked up by the Mars InSight lander. There was one 4.1 and 4.2, and these are on the other side of the planet from the lander's location. Gives scientists a check to probe deeper into the red planet's internal structure than ever before. And while we're in the area, let's check out Mars' two moons, Deimos and Phobos. They were discovered in 1877. Phobos is only 15 miles across and orbits a mere 3,700 miles from Mars. That's close. Deimos is just 9 miles wide and 12,000 miles out. Their origins remain mysterious, but we may find out more when Japan attempts a Mars-Moons landing in 2024. Scientists believe that Phobos is spiraling toward Mars, though, and in another 50,000 years could be pulverized by the planet's gravity. Deimos, however, is doing the other way. It's pulling away from Mars and could eventually go rogue. It's many cultures, one sky. Today we're talking with science colleague and archaeoastronomer Daoud Valentine. We're down here in the magic country of south-central Utah, and we're just talking about the sky in the morning. You were saying that uh, every morning, as Daoud and... Chloe sleep outside every night, and on a deck they can see the wonderful morning conjunctions. 
Yeah, it's been great all month long. There's been conjunction. That uh, beautiful crescent moon this morning. You've been seeing the moon dancing in and out of this configuration the whole time, haven't you? Well, the moon's uh, waning crescent right now, and it's getting smaller and smaller and getting closer and closer to the sun. And each day it was by um, Saturn, and then it cruised over to the next day. It was kind of on one side of Mars, the next day on the other side of Mars. And then uh, the following day, which was today, I guess, um, it was right, it's always been below the planets a little bit, but it's been, it was below uh, Venus and Jupiter. Yeah, nice little grouping. Speaking of the moon, uh, Daoud is an archaeoastronomer as well as Chloe, and they go to different destinations, finding, searching out places where they can see astronomical sightings. We have things like Stonehenge and the Great Pyramids, and yeah, the Great Pyramids. Is, <laughs> everyone knows the pyramids in Egypt, and uh, they're very um, intricately. Um, oriented to the cardinal directions and so um, astronomy was a part of probably how they laid out those pyramids and part of maybe it's part of their function as well so well and speaking of the moon uh, we were talking about the moon which is part of what this story is with the uh, it's such a generic name anymore chimney rock because they're everywhere but this is a a nice chimney rock in colorado yeah chimney rock colorado is um it's a it's a place out it's a Puebloan site an ancient Puebloan site which is out in Colorado south uh, western Colorado and it's uh, kind of by Durango and Pagosa Springs out in that area yeah. so it's a little ways out there but it's it's a great spot and it's um, high up on top of this ridge line a beautiful corn veneer masonry uh, Chaco style architecture that's put up there on that ridge line what it's famous for is the moon alignment which happens um, the moon has five degrees is five degrees off of the ecliptic which is the pathway of the sun from our um, observation location here on planet earth what happens at chimney rock that's interesting is that the moon has the ability of going five degrees further north and five degrees further south on the eastern horizon as it's rising and um, looking at those chimneys which stick up above the horizon on a 18.6 year cycle the moon will rise between those chimneys so feel the magic keep looking around looking up and get a little bit lost in space skywatcher leo t on upr with translator station statewide and streaming live